What is going on? It is Adam. Welcome back to Bringing It Backwards, a podcast where both legendary and rising artists tell their own personal stories of how they achieve stardom. On this episode, we had a chance to hang out with Grammy award-winning producer, songwriter, author, Ian Brennan over Zoom video. Ian was born in Oakland, California, raised in the East Bay and talks about how he got into music. Started off on drums at five years old, ended up starting to play guitar around 13 but was always interested in songwriting and lyrics and poetry. He is also the author of eight books, so we talk about that a little bit as well. The albums and projects that Ian is involved in are very, very creative and definitely a bit different than traditional songwriting and pop songs and rock songs. For example, the album that won a Grammy is called Music from Zamba Prison, which is a maximum security prison as decrepit, overcrowded, and the record was recorded there and utilized the musicians and guards and prisoners of the Zamba prison. His latest album was recorded in Azerbaijan, and it's called The Oldest Voice in the World, and it features the voices of people over 100 years old. So he dives in to how that album was put together, The Oldest Voice in the World. You can watch the interview with Ian and myself on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. It'd be amazing if you subscribe to our channel, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, it would be amazing if you could hook us up with a five-star review. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're Bringing It Backwards with Ian Brennan. Right on, man. Well, uh, I'm Adam. Nice to meet you. Hi, Adam. Um, this is a podcast about you and uh, your journey in the music industry. And I know you have a book and a bunch of stuff. So I'd love to chat with you about that and the new album. Okay, great. Great. Sweet. Um, I did read, uh, based off your bio, born in, uh, born in Oakland, raised yep. in the East Bay? Uh, raised in the East Bay, yeah. Yeah, I'm based okay. in Italy now. But... Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Well, I'll yep. talk about that. Uh, so you're born in Oakland, and uh, when uh, what what part of the East Bay? I'm from San Diego, but I lived in the Bay Area for like five years doing radio. I grew up so. in uh, Pleasant Hill, and oh, I lived, cool! I lived in Crockett, and uh, I don't know if you know where that is. It's where the CNH factory is, sugar factory. And then I, uh, and then I lived in on Petrol Hill for eleven years until I got evicted by the tech industry, basically an owner move in eviction to to get through the around the loophole for rent control because she oh, charged wow. three times as much if, if she got got us out and she did so that's wild man i lived in walnut creek for a while so i know pleasant okay. house right next door or right yeah, next yeah, to yeah. it we were literally on the border our house was literally on the border the, oh cool yeah i kind of lived on the border there up by what is that the 24 right after the uh yeah well yeah there's right yeah there's the 24 yeah we 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 were uh in the corner there before you go over the hill to lafayette Oh, cool. Right on. Yeah. The end of the school district, which was a problem because we had to, our our schools all got closed when they cut all the funding and we had to go super long distances without any public transportation, without any school buses and stuff. So. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. That's a bummer. Um. It's, so well, were you in Oakland very long or no? Just born there? And, no, and no, no, no. You lived in there. I worked, I worked there for, the, you know, from the late eighties uh, through through to two thousand one, and I still work there. I teach. That's where I teach a lot. Is an old. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. Rad. So uh, what about music? How did you get into music? Uh, I got into music uh, in, in the sense I was always into it, meaning I don't remember not wanting to play music and it being the one thing or the main thing that I was connected to, you know, coming from a a jock family, you know, like a dad that was good at sports and a brother that was good at sports and and not being good at sports myself, but wanting to be, you know, trying mm-hmm. to be, you know, kind of that was the expectation. Um, but music was the the thing I related to, art in general, but but mm-hmm. music particularly. And so I started playing when I was five years old and and wow, was pretty obsessively unhealth uh, unhealthily attached to it um uh you know as a teenager you know like nowadays they would have medicated me and probably hospitalized me or something or sent me up to some camp or something but but uh you know i learned to play <laughs> right right were you Not playing well piano other people five? that was part of the problem but i learned to play i learned to play in a certain way well you know mm-hmm. and uh yeah and so i just never stopped and i i i never will you know as long wow. as i'm able was that uh, five? You started what on piano, drums, drums. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, not for long though. I'm not much of a drummer, and then I switched over to guitar. And I okay. got you know extremely serious about guitar when I was uh, thirteen. You know. Okay. Yeah. Was there a particular uh, band or guitars you looked up to, or like what kind of uh, got you on the the guitar route? Well, I think it was just that the era. I mean, you know, there wasn't much imagination growing up in a, you know, kind of white trash working class neighborhood. There wasn't, uh, um, which it was at the time. Um, there was. It's changed uh, quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, it has. Well, gentrification it doesn't just happen to cities. It happens sure. to the, the, the sur- suburbs around suburbs, them. Suburbs, right. Um, and it just keeps moving out, you know, like concentric circles. But, But, you know, we didn't have much imagination beyond, you know, arena rock i mean that and and then and eventually punk rock uh and there was you know already the 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 tie had been severed to kind of historic music being handed down mouth to ear you know Mm -hmm. so there was a a german guy who um lived kitty corner from us and he played accordion and that was about it you know no one else you know played music and uh so you know we we therefore were mentored or influenced by queen and you know uh you know judas priest and van halen and all that stuff so there were a lot of great guitar players but i tended to be um inspired by the ones that were a little bit more emotional and lyrical and Mm -hmm. you know like like david gilmore and, and 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 that sort of playing um yeah but ultimately i was interested in songs and stories and being a writer and so that that led me to you know being very focused on Springsteen from, you know, 73 to 82, um, mm-hmm. you know, not, not so much before and barely at all after. Uh, okay. You know, and uh, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, you've written six books. Is that what I read? Uh, I've written seven. There's seven books. One. Yeah. The two, one of them's co-written and an eighth one in Italian language. One is coming out. Um, uh, wow. Next month. And then I've got two more books coming out next year that, you know, one on music and one on, you know, violence prevention and conflict resolution. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's what I've always done. You know, I I I, I ultimately continued with music because I, I looked at it as that people didn't really read poetry anymore. You know, there was a period where people did. 
And then there was a period where, you know, where they read good poetry, like, you know, Dylan Thomas was pretty big sensation in the U.S. His records sold a lot. Um, right. And then, you know, and then you ended up in the era of like Rob McEwen, you know, where people were into poetry, but bad poetry, um, essentially. And then you got into, you know, poetry with greater depth, you know, wh when people started, you know, going beyond the structure of couplets and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but no one read it anymore. And and still virtually nobody does. Um, I mean, a very small percentage of the population. They don't even have a, a bestsellers list for poetry, New York Times. Is that right? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So when Amanda Gorman, you know, had this breakthrough and, and you know, right person at the right time and all that stuff, mm -hmm. they she was number one on the nonfiction list, you know, Interesting. The only place they could put her um, is my understanding. That's what I was told. And uh, you know, cause they didn't have a, a best selling sellers for poetry anymore. So anyway, that's a long way of saying that, that I, I saw that I felt like for your words to be heard, put them to song. And mm -hmm. I made the mistake or miscalculation of believing that you could do that in a non-traditional songwriting structure, which means open verse. Mm -hmm. um, and I was dead wrong. Uh, but, I, you know, so many people listen to and quote songwriters, oftentimes one line and everybody quotes the same line, but, you know, that line is a huge contribution to humanity. And yet you've got amazing poets like Charles Simic who, who sit, you know, largely unread, and yet almost every poem has a line that should be quoted. Sure. No, I can. I completely agree. I think a lot of people resonate with lyrics. I mean, I come from the like the the like emo bands were starting to kind of do something at the time when I was like uh, in high school, late mid to late high school, and I feel like a lot of the kids resonated with those you know those darker kind of really emotional lyrics, and it definitely made a shift from what I felt like was the pretty popular stuff on the radio. And it was like in the days of like AOL instant messenger and like people was like, you leave like your little away messages. And it was always just some quote from some emo song. I feel like it was a majority of it. And I feel like that chant uh, kind of came back there for a minute. It was almost poetry to, like you said, to, to songs. Or yeah, to music. I think there's, there's, there are people, uh, uh, you know, not everyone necessarily, but there's definitely uh, people that, that are hungry for it in every generation. And, yeah. Uh, and, you know, look for that and are inspired by it. And I think almost everyone, uh, you know, likes wordplay. Like you sure. know, when somebody really nails something, it, it, it's, a, a, it's a very comforting feeling, you know, because mm -hmm. it's like being, people talk about being heard. Well, when someone writes something where they are able to, you know, articulate something, illuminate something that people feel but haven't been able to articulate, I mean, that, that, that's invaluable. And, right. And, uh, and, and it doesn't happen all that often, but it but it happens. And, and, and unfortunately, those aren't the voices and those aren't the words and those aren't the stories that are oftentimes put forth. But mm -hmm. having said that, I mean, obviously, the history of rap, the history of hip hop has incredible writing throughout mm -hmm. um, of various forms, you know, whether it's more whimsical and and playful, you know, kind of the 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 genius of that kind of writing, like the Bond Scott kind of writing from right, the CBC right. where, you know, people at the time, critics at the time just, you know, ravaged them. They were just savage about how horrible it was and how dumb it was. And it was like, no, it wasn't dumb. It was like no, really no. smart, you know, maybe offensive some of it, but but <laughs> you know, actually well written, you know. I mean, so 
very much in the Chuck Berry style, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so hip hop has that. I, I find it a little sad that now with hip hop that there's so much repetition in the words, you know, uh, not everyone, you know, but I'm right. talking about like commercially, uh, you know, a, a rap song having less words than a pop song sometimes now. It's incredible, you know, instead yeah. of being like this book, you know, a right. three minute book. Yeah. Or it's like, I mean, you look at a, a, a rap collective like you know wu-tang clan they had nine guys that would come on and every one of them would have something completely different to to contribute to a song and they're really long but it was not a whole lot of repetitive stuff whatsoever i mean maybe there was a hook but other than that yeah it really relied on the beat and the in the in the guys coming in and saying what they had to say yeah it's a great example i mean they're one of the they're one of the greatest groups in you know in uh popular music history sure um, with so with uh, with you and the music that you are write and are kind of a, a part of has is so far moved, I think, at least sonically from like you were talking about, like these big arena bands. I mean, when did you get into more like this world? I mean, you've been you've you know, you have Grammys and stuff for more of this like world music. Like, what was that always something you were kind of interested in? No, I wouldn't say always because I would I would you'd say that I didn't know it existed. I mean, I know okay. this wasn't, there just wasn't exposure, you know? Sure. I mean, it, it's a very white centric environment. Correct. Um, and, uh, you know, you're so immersed in that world that obviously it, it, it stunts your vision and even blinds you potentially. Um, and for me, it, it was more about really being, you know, invested in diversity and being invested in inclusion. My, my sister, my only sister, who's only 14 months older than me, uh, has down, severe Down syndrome. You know, mm-hmm. there are three types and she has severe Down syndrome. She was mostly nonverbal her whole life. She's now physically disabled as well and almost entirely nonverbal. Um, so this was during the period where uh, people from the disabled community largely were being seen for the first time, you know, especially mm-hmm. people with developmental disabilities where um, deinstitutionalization literally started to happen a few years after she was born. So wow. uh, growing up, uh, you know, it, it provoked a lot of paranoia and a lot of defensiveness and, and maybe also, you know, a lot of sensitivity sure. to outsiderism, you know, experienced largely indirectly but oftentimes participating in it too, you know, when you're, when you're a two, three, four year old kid and people are pointing at you and laughing at you, um, your family, it's, it, you know, it has impact. And so I'm very committed to, to inclusion. Um, and I'm very committed to equity. Um, and what that means essentially for me is that I, I really believe that it's not charity, that it's a benefit to the listener. It's a benefit to the reader. Uh, to push themselves, uh, to listen to things that aren't the low-hanging fruit. And that doesn't mean you should like something because it's different. It means you should give it a chance because it's different. And then if you don't like it, that's good, meaning that you're, you know, you're tough-minded about it. It's not that you're being easy. Mm-hmm. It's just that at my book events, I oftentimes will say, if I'm there with you know, a female author or, or, or someone other, you know, I, I'll say, look, buy their book first, meaning pick up their book, look at their book, look at my book. If you feel like their book is maybe as desirable and you're only going to buy one book today, buy their book. I really mean this. And, and, uh, and, and, but if you pick it up and you feel like, nah, no, this doesn't seem to resonate with me. And, and, and this other book does, well then buy that book. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no guilt in that, but 
I think that clearly, numerically, we have a problem, you know, and we have this inequity where anywhere you go in the world, you hear English language music anywhere Mm -hmm. in public spaces, not in private spaces, not at all, in my experience, especially not in rural private spaces. But in public spaces, it's still the same stuff over and over and over again. I mean, my wife and I, Marilena Umozadeli, who does, we do all the projects together. She does mm-hmm. all the video and filmmaking and photography. You know, we have a, a, a kind of a running joke because it's real, is that almost everywhere we've gone, not everywhere, but almost everywhere we've had an experience where we're, you know, in the airport or we walk into some cafe place and they're playing Hotel California. it's it's like unbelievable it's like oh my god you know i was a little kid when that song was on the radio all right it's like here we are there's no equivalent there's no equivalent most people in america do not have that experience they don't you know walk into many places and hear something in a language other than english right hear something in a style that that's rad you know they don't walk in and hear ethiopian jazz or something that is really really dramatically different from european structures Mm mm-hmm no, I yeah, I completely agree. It is interesting to think that it, it it's I've I've interviewed a lot of artists from all around the world, and and especially you know they talk about writing songs in their native language, and then once it's they get to a certain point, the producers or a record label or whoever is like, okay, now it's time to write a song in English if we really want to you know make a splash type situation. It's really just fascinating where. I forgot who maybe it was Erica Ender, some all Spanish songs. And then it was like, oh, you should probably write an English song. And it's like, yeah. well, why? You know, and it's if you want to kind of appeal to a bigger, broader audience, that's the, the best move to make. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's when it, when that becomes the default, I think it's a little scary. It's colonialism in a different form. And, Completely. You know, what's beautiful is for all of us is that, you know, my wife is, is multilingual. My daughter's bilingual and almost multilingual. I'm not, I'm, I'm the bad American that really struggles with, with, with language beyond English. I'm not proud of that. I wish it was different. It's always been the case for me. I really aspired to and wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be James Bond. I wanted to be able to speak 20 languages, you know, right. or whatever, but, but that's, that that's never been possible for me. Um, and so the musicality of the language is so important, but also when you speak in your mother tongue, you you express yourself in a way that is not possible in any other language. As 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 advanced as you can be and as good as you can be, my my wife is is listed as mother tongue English by the the TOEFL test, you know, for English. Um, but you know, she's constantly frustrated by that, saying, you know, she she prefers whenever possible to express herself in Italian because that mm-hmm. that's her. That's her first language. And but the musicality, too, I think, is what's lost. You know, when you Mm -hmm. look at languages that have so many more sounds or different sounds than we have. And unfortunately, what happens for all of us is we're born with the ability to make every sound that's used by humans in speech. So in order to learn a language, we actually have to become less musical, no matter how musical that language is. Interesting. And, yeah. And so that's why babies, you know, they all make the same sounds anywhere in the world. It's it's the same sounds. They don't they don't sound different. You know, and they're huh. not born sounding different. They have to learn to filter out certain sounds and to strengthen others. 
Wow, that's really fascinating. I've never even thought about that. Yeah, all babies are, yeah, they're making the same sounds until they learn language, right? Yeah, and they're also incredible singers. You know, they, 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 they're like opera singers. You know, they, right. they do not tire themselves out usually. They don't usually get hoarse. <laughs> yeah, I remember my, my six-year-old son, he, it was really hard to tire him out. He'd be screaming, <laughs> hitting these like insanely high-pitched yeah. notes, and it's like, Oh, okay, and he's gonna keep going for another two hours. Okay, here we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, they it, we we unfortunately are are made to be unmusical largely by mm -hmm. by Western culture, and and that's something that many other cultures, fortunately, have not fractured as of yet. But you know, the more that you have one way technologies invade, you know, first radio, and then television, and and now you know internet. In, in maybe immersive technologies, uh, the more passive people become in, in mm -hmm. the process. And that's something is lost there. You know, it, it's, I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world, but there's a division where, where people, you know, so many people I'm sure, you know, and, and that I know, I'd say the majority would describe themselves as not musical, not a good singer, not a good right. dancer. And it's like, well, it's just not true. You know, mm -hmm. you, 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 have to have rhythm to be able to walk so so when people are walking they they they're dancing in a sense um and and other movements coordinated movements as well if not walking and you have to have you know a pitch in order to be able to in order to speak you know because mm -hmm. it's embedded in every language not just tone languages so you know the individual is able to sing essentially you know they're not tone deaf mm -hmm. you know that that's a big myth yeah, that's really fascinating. I've never thought about it like that. Um, when it comes to you know your your music projects, uh, are the, a lot of them kind of coincide with with what your wife is doing as far as like videography or you know I feel like you have these even the most recent one you know or the one that's coming out right the oldest voice in the world back to the one the, the one that you won a Grammy for with the Zomba Prison like are these projects where she's filming kind of a a videos piece to this and you guys are working together like how how do you how did you start these because these uh, the concepts behind these records are so cool like when did that kind of start for you well you know i mean the seeds of it i technically go back to meaning that the technical sonic side of it go back to being in san francisco um in the mid 90s and realizing that i'd made a bunch of horrible records so i'd learned how to not make records my own records um, because my ego was too invested and I was too autocratic. Were and you doing then, like singer songwriter stuff? I'm just yeah, curious real quick. Okay. Yeah. And I was just, you know, it's fear. It's always fear that gets people into trouble. Usually fear mm -hmm. masked by other stuff. And, um, and so I, I decided, you know, to start doing a free weekly, um, show acoustic show in a laundromat every week as a way to kind of liberate myself and have guests come in every week. And I started recording them and I did it for five years. And playing in a laundromat is humbling and liberating and also requires playing with your environments, like literally, like you have to be listening to what's going on, mm -hmm. um, you know, because there's going to be an espresso machine over there, you know, they got a little cafe <laughs> and that's going to start going and there's the dryer next door that's just been turned on and there's people walking by with grocery carts, you know, and, and their stuff. And, and people come in and out, maybe, you know, you know, they're drunk or psychotic. So, so you learn, you learn to play with the environment. And so I started doing field recording and I never knew that that would lead to 
recording, you know, around the world, um, you know, because I'm someone who didn't even was never even, you know, east of the Mississippi till I was 24 years old. So, wow. um, you know, I wasn't a traveled person and neither was anybody in my family. My mother never left North America. Uh, you know, so it, it's my father finally came over right before his death and visited us here in Italy. But to answer your earlier question, which is related to this, um, I became burnout on the hype cycle in the late 80s already when they had lots of weekly newspapers in every city, you know, oftentimes more than one in the big cities, because every week they promised the next great thing. And the only way you could find out was to buy the record. You know, you couldn't just look it up online and listen a little bit. So right. I just got burned so many times. I started I started, you know, uh, you know, becoming concerned and interested in other things. And and what I found and what I, I firmly believe is that the enemy of the process is not things that are bad because things that are bad are actually sometimes really good, you know, by accident. Um, they're extreme and, and, and they have qualities that maybe they did not intend. The enemy is mediocrity. You know, we are flooded with mediocrity that is hyped as if it's not. And that's unhealthy for everybody. So I started looking other places, other languages around the world, and and then started to see the value of the inclusion. And and what that means, of course, unfortunately, as we talked about earlier with the English language, is that you can look at a map, you know, a map of the world or, or a globe and throw a dart at it. And odds are you're going to hit a country that, that most people in the world could not name a single artist from and have probably never listened to music from. Right. Um, in, in a language other than English, unless somebody might be, you know, a performer that's from the city and the aristocracy and they, they sing in English. So in 2009, uh, Marlena and I went to Rwanda with her, her mother, who was returning to Rwanda for the first time since the 1994 genocide to meet a friend who she had been told and thought had perished in the 94 genocide. And then it just found out was actually still alive. Wow. So we went there, Marlena did a documentary about it, and we figured, you know, I think sensibly so, that, that the music should be zero kilometer, it should come from Rwanda, it shouldn't be superimposed by some singer-songwriter from San Francisco or otherwise. So we started searching, and we spent ended up spending our entire time there, more than two weeks looking for music, and we found lots of music, and most of it was, again, just kind of, ah, so-so, you know, like, like, it didn't sound that different than music you'd hear elsewhere. It wasn't bad. It wasn't good. We found some great old, you know, vintage stuff, you know, that, you know, classic stuff from the 60s and 70s, but current stuff we did not. And then two days before we left, we met the good ones. Um, and Adrian Kazagara from, from the good ones is one of the greatest roots writers in the world. Um, I'm convinced of this. I was convinced of it the moment I met him. I'm convinced of it today. I will never be told differently. They are the Nick Drake of world music or global music, I would say. Um, and uh, we did an album with them and we've gone on to do four records with them. And and that led to then going to Malawi where, you know, a year later or so, where Marlena also has roots. And so we went in search of music. And again, we spent almost our entire time there looking for music. We found stuff, nice people. We found some music that was not bad. Like we recorded it. You can make a record out of it. But we're firmly committed to not putting out music if we don't strongly believe in it, like that it has a reason to exist, that it, it offers something that is not offered elsewhere. And so we didn't put any of that music out. And and then almost near the last day, we, we met the Malawi Mouse Boys and 
that relationship led to a record and that has led to four albums and we continue to have a relationship with them to this day both those groups continue to battle poverty daily and hunger daily and uh they've had opportunities to travel outside their country for the first time and they've had opportunities to perform in england and australia and or america and they've been critically acclaimed and and you know garnered fans you know famous people you know like you know from Fugazi and Wilco and, and artists of that nature. Um, but their daily life is still really a struggle without electricity, without running water, with, with health challenges. Um, and I think that's a large example of, of the inequity because if Adrian was singing in English and if he was from Brooklyn or East Nashville or Silver Lake and he was wearing a cowboy hat, he's a farmer, but he doesn't wear a cowboy hat. Mm -hmm. um, then, uh, then, he'd be doing all right. I think I'm not saying he'd be a millionaire, but, but he'd probably, he'd have his niche and, and he'd be etching out an income, but, you know, unfortunately, cause they're from Rwanda, they get thrown into the, this large kind of undefined pile of othered, you know, world music, global music, whatever it's called this idea that everything outside of the English language world, particularly England, Australia, and America is something exotic and something other rather than no this is roots music this mm -hmm. is, these are people that grew up together writing songs in the dark on their farm singing together since childhood that's interesting i, I didn't think about that either i mean uh to to win a grammy award i mean for for world music right they're only taking in consideration a few nations and then everyone else is just world music yeah oh yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, the whole world. I mean, so there's about almost 8 billion people on the planet now, close to uh, the estimate is. And uh -huh. essentially, there's only one field that now has two categories, but one field for the other 7 billion. Right. It's so wild to think about that. So this record that you're doing, or the one that's coming out in April, in a few weeks, actually, or no, next month is March. I'm so confused. Uh, <laughs> is it done with that, that same group of people then that you just, you know, the, the people you're just talking about that did the other four records with you? Oh, no, no, no. Okay. This is totally different. We've gone, we've gone in search of music. We, we have faith that, you know, it's a leap of faith, but we have faith that there's music everywhere. There's mm -hmm. no way musical country. We see favoritism towards certain countries that oftentimes population wise might be quite small. Like there's a lot of mythology about Mali. You know, it's a Delta country like the Delta in America. It's a former French colony. So it has certain advantages because many of the people are bilingual in French. Um, and so there's, there's a certain concentration there and beautiful music comes from there. I mean, no doubt about that, but it's this idea that there are places that aren't musical that is false. And so we have gone blindly most places without knowing a soul uh with the faith that we would find music that was unique and compelling mm -hmm. and uh and that has been the case in almost every scenario we lose money doing it um but it's one of the most joyful experiences in the world uh when you connect with somebody and have that level of intimacy and where you literally hear someone and they know they've been heard mm -hmm. and whether a record results or not is secondary you know, it's not even it's not even the goal, ultimately. Um, so in Azerbaijan, we went um, into the Talish Mountains where, uh, you know, the Talish minority lives and they've been long, you know, subjected to to a lot of mistreatment by more powerful 
groups, you know, the war between Iran and Russia split their 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 territory, their region down the middle, like happens so often with with groups that are are long established but but less powerful. But there, uh, supposedly, uh, reportedly, uh, is where the oldest man in the, the world was from, that he lived to be 168 years old. And uh, many other people have been, notably, over 100 years old. So we wow. did this this largely as an act of anti-ageism, mm -hmm. but also we did this uh, in an interest in another region and in another language, and not just a country that many people haven't heard of, Azerbaijan, but a particular group in the country that is isolated, literally up in the corner, up in the mountains, dirt roads, hard to reach. Um, most of them living without electricity or running water. Uh, and so some of them have running water. Um, but, uh, and and so we went there in search of that. And it, it's, uh, it was right after COVID. So what we discovered is that sadly, many of them had passed away during COVID. Mm -hmm. But still, there were there were many many folks and their voices were so compelling because for me a lot of my favorite voices recorded voices are when people have aged you know great singers have aged mm -hmm. so the voices might be imperfect but i find that oftentimes the voices are more compelling because they are bringing more to to the the song and the words that they're singing so sinatra merle haggard who i worked with um you know, little Jimmy Scott, I mean, uh, uh, people that had beautiful, beautiful voices, they may not be as slick later on, but um, sometimes I think they're stronger. But oftentimes we're talking about, you know, when they've aged into their late 40s, 50s or 60s. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was, have we ever really listened to or heard people that are over 100 years old? And so yeah. these are the voices of those people. Wow. So, were, were all of them in that same uh, location then? I mean, t t how how many people did you find that were over 100 like so how many voices are on the record well i i think you know there's the number we recorded and then there's the number on the record it's always a little bit different mm -hmm. um because you know we don't release everything we record sure uh, by design um you know if you know in out of respect to the artist and uh, the process and the listener um but um you know we found many and they're in technically the same region mm -hmm. but like so many uh, less economically advantaged regions what looks small on a map is is not easy to to get around it's quite big and this is very common especially in mountainous areas mm -hmm. so there you know the mountains are incredibly beautiful there um, but there what you're facing once you get up you know into the top of the valley is to get to every village you're on a dirt road um, and you're and this was late november so ice and snow but worse and most dangerous of all, mud, um, you know, muddy roads. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, we would have gone there with a, a, a person from the city and he had a four by four and his four by four could not do it. So we wow. had to rent um, these old Russian vehicles, these old workhorse vehicles that you would never guess would be able to do this versus versus a, uh, uh, you know, a big SUV. They just look like little you know, old Datsuns from the seventies or something, Wow! but they're designed to drive on these roads. And so we, we did, and, and it was, it was pretty treacherous. I mean, the local we were with literally screamed. He was so terrified when we were going up to the village where 
the oldest person in the world, you know, hailed from. Um, there was a moment where he really thought he was going to die, you know, off the side of one of these roads. Um, but, uh, you know, so so getting from from house to house and individual to individual was was time consuming, even though you look on a map and it would look like, ah, you know, you can do it in a day. You know, you just going right. to go here, you know, and, and that would be the case. And so I think, you know, what people oftentimes maybe don't know, have not experienced or forget is that one of the big challenges that people face that are isolated physically, you know, beyond electricity and obviously clean water being essential um, is, is lack of good roads. And without that, that really creates a level of isolation and a level of danger. I mean, they're mm -hmm. isolated from people coming to help. Um, and they're also isolated, which is something that promotes violence you know you can commit violence much more easily in isolation than you can when there's a populace sure. um, around a greater populace so when you know ebola broke out i mean that is one of the things that that was really critical was that it wasn't even necessarily entirely not being able to help people it was not being able to get to them easily because of where they were mm -hmm. and this is something we've run into many times again where the map is not the road where you look at it and you go oh you know that that's just going to be you know five minutes away and even sometimes now if google's been there and you google google certain things you know they'll give you an estimate and it has nothing to do with the reality you know you know probably because i'm not sure maybe it hasn't been experienced directly so it's probably based on some kind of average and then you find out no this this you know 15 mile drive takes an hour and a half. Right. It's like, you know, five miles and it doesn't look like there's any traffic. So it should take <laughs> you no like yeah. five minutes. But yeah, in the in reality, it's not so easy. And to think of all the, all the preparation, too, it's like there's not a gas station you can just pull over at or anything like that. Like, I mean, you have to really prepare yourself for how far you're going. And, and I would imagine coming back and everything. Yep. Yep. It's true. Wow. Um, no triple A. Yeah. How do you, uh, is it difficult to kind of make connections with, with people in these areas to even have the opportunity to go into a village like that? I mean, you can't just show up with a camera crew, right? No, no, we don't use a crew. Um, you know, or, we, we were DIY, you know, punk rock people. That's the background. And, 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 and it's all about the relationships and the intimacy. And, mm -hmm. and the only direction I ever give people is be bad be really bad, play as bad as possible, be horrible. You know, that that's really the direction I give, if any. Um, and, and so it, with a lot of these projects, with, with the Azerbaijan project, with these uh, centenarians and with, with most of the Zomba prison project and with the Tanzania Albanism Collective project and with the, the project in Kosovo, um, mm -hmm. anytime you're, you know, interacting with people that are not, you know, trained traditional musicians. Well, the, the way to go then in those cases is experimental, you know, that, 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 you know, to be really experimental and be, and oftentimes what they found, I, I did a talk for a bunch of neurologists once at a conference and they said that they had found what I was talking about had just been, you know, studied. And that was that, there's this big gap in the middle with most musicians, but at the ends, you've got the amateur and you've got the, the master, the expert. Mm -hmm. And those two people are almost identical neurologically, meaning that they are free. 
-hmm. you know, they don't have all the preoccupation. And so what the, the beauty of recording, there's a lot of disadvantages to recording that, that I believe in the repetition of it, of the same sounds over and over and over and over again. But the beauty of it is that you can capture that. You can capture, you know, literally first thought, best thought. So we did a project with my sister and her community right before COVID and right before she, you know, had physical problems that resulted. Um, and uh, there's a song in there called The First Time I Ever Touched a Guitar. And it's literally the first time that person ever touched a guitar. And wow. it it is incredible. They're playing better than I could, you know, 99.99% of the time. If you gave them a guitar again, probably wouldn't happen that way. And if you had them practice for 10 years, they'd probably never be able to play as good as in that moment. But that's what I believe is the beauty of the recording in, in the field and live recording versus overdub recording is you, you know, there's a trade-off sonically, you know, it's not, it's not going to be airbrushed and perfect, but the beauty of it is that it's real, it's alive. And it's something that actually happened. It started here. It ended there at this place at this time on this day with these people, mm -hmm. it's something that actually occurred. And most of what people are listening to with multi-track recording are things that did not happen. Right. They happen not as a real-time event. Mm -hmm. It's a simulation of a real-time event that's done because the concern about it being good and perfect is put well ahead of, of the emotion being conveyed and the life. And the life is in the mistakes, the errors. That's where the life comes from. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that almost all the great artists were good on accident. They weren't good on purpose. They weren't doing things on purpose. They were doing weird stuff that they oftentimes weren't in control of, you know, and, and, and things that would seem like, like liabilities became their strengths. But mm -hmm. once they find out that that's their strength and they start playing to it, then it loses its genuineness. Sure. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I, it's I, when you're talking, I'm thinking of a couple artists that I've interviewed that during COVID, you know, they'd have to, they'd write a song and then they would record the vocals in their closet with some $50 USB mic. And when it came to then trying to re-record the vocal take in a you know legitimate expensive studio, they ended up just going with the demo because you kind of reliving and trying to reproduce that emotion that was saying the first time is near is impossible. So it was like, well, instead of trying to be perfect and hit the notes perfectly yeah. They're like, well, this, like, I can hear the emotion in my take on this one. Sure, it's a $50 mic and in my closet, but there's something real about it. And we're going to yeah. go with that version. It's just interesting. Yeah, yeah it doesn't need to be manipulated because it comes with its own color. Sure. Um, and so instead, what ends up happening is people are trying to constantly fit something to this grid of, of what it should be. And yeah, it, you're very astute to say that during the, the COVID, people basically got back to bedroom recording the eighties phenomenon with Tascam four track cassette mm -hmm. recorders. Um, and to understand the warmth and intimacy that can come from that, you know, to be even become a preferred form of recording. I, I had a friend, Jeff Clint, who sadly has passed. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, a great songwriter, an incredibly gifted human and uh, not famous, never known, uh, should have been uh, more so. And uh, I was helping him with his record and his group. And, and they had a lot of resources. So they went into 
different different studios and and they spent a lot of money and and again everything was fine it just wasn't what they were like when they when they played usually mm-hmm. um and and live they had this chemistry and, and this beauty and a lot of it was that they were kind of like the replacements they were just you know a, a car wreck train wreck half the time but but there was a beauty to it a love to it and a, and a fragility and, and, and a toughness all at the same time and so you know you know i i said well how do you guys normally play you know because they were doing going in doing what we're talking about the fractured you know play the drums do a click track and then somebody else comes in and plays the guitar and somebody else comes in and plays the bass you know all that stuff mm-hmm. and they said oh we sit around my kitchen table and we drink beers I'm like, well, that's that's how you should record your record. So we we did that, recorded the whole record, and it was great. And that ultimately became their album. But there was one song that was never as good as what you're talking about, which was a cassette recording that Jeff had done in the middle of the night, coming home from a long trip, and you're listening to that song being born. Mm-hmm. You're listening to that sound being born. And you're listening to probably the closest he came to telling his life story specifically and accurately. Um, and it's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. And it's sonically all wrong, but but you could never, ever duplicate that. And they ultimately put it on the record. And it's still it's still one of my favorite, you know, I mean, favorite, there's probably a lot. But it's 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 one of those transcendent recordings that. I, I can come back to you again and again and again and never feel like I was wrong and go, mm-hmm. oh, no, maybe it wasn't as good as I remembered. You know, it's like, no, no, still just as good. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's poignant and it's moving and it's, I think, timeless. And it's something that I think diverse people, you know, that might not normally like that kind of music, bedroom, you know, folk, indie rock stuff might connect with because of the emotion. Mm hmm. And I love that you put in the credits like a hundred. You, you like we've been talking the whole time. You put a hundred percent live without overdubs on this album. Yeah. And so, what once you get the voices down, do you go back? Like, how do how does the record kind of come together into an album? Well, <laughs> excuse me. Um, it it depends. Every every process is different. You know. Mm-hmm. Again, there's these two extremes of there's. The person at the one end who who is you know maybe a lifelong musician like Ustad Sami from Pakistan, uh, who's seventy seven years old now, who I, I've done three albums with, and and you know when you're with someone like that, you can do this kind of recording also because they can do the they can do the song ten times in a row, and every time it's going to be amazing and you know different mm-hmm. maybe but amazing. Um, so records like that, it's just more a matter of just mixing you know let's say you know and i i don't believe in multiple takes uh, i believe they're going to be different not better or worse than the other usually um i believe that the person should just be free to express themselves and not be using the left side of their brain you know to try to analyze and judge themselves and other people um and and so when it's people that maybe are not as experienced then it's a matter of you know recording as much as possible and that's part of the idea of not listening back that you're there and you're just recording no judgment i'm not listening back to it they're not listening back to it we're just having an experience we're just playing music there's no pressure we don't know what's going to come of it maybe nothing's going to come of it play badly and then you go back and you assess it and you see and and uh you know sometimes it's a case where there's two songs that are both great but they're very similar so maybe one gets left off a record um and sometimes it's a case where 
you know, you have to tailor it a little bit more, you know, like an improv that's 20 minutes long. And then, and then there's that moment where everything crystallizes and you just feel it and it just gels. It's like the, you know, the old, you know, bebop jazz or free jazz or grateful dead thing, you know, where they'd be playing and, you know, for an extended period, it would seem like it was a disaster. And then suddenly somehow just everybody would just, you know, five or 10 players would just come together for a minute or two, you know, magically. And Mm -hmm. that happens a lot on these kind of recordings. That's cool. It's just such a different way of approaching a record. And it's something I've, I've never had a chance to speak with somebody about it. it's really really cool i love uh what what you're doing oh, really fascinating yeah. yeah and i appreciate your time today thank you so much for for doing this Ian. no thank you it was a pleasure speaking with you so. yeah i do have one more question i know you don't like to give advice and your advice <laughs> you gave a little bit earlier but i always ask if you have any for aspiring artists well i mean i think the, the main thing that i would say specifically if you're talking about collaborative arts Mm -hmm. is make art with people you love and make art with your friends um and and do what you love you know be yourself and and if you do that and not be concerned about the results play music for its own sake and be liberated by that process i would encourage everyone to write one poem and then burn it or record one song, listen to it once, and then erase it. I mean, when you think it's good, you know, rather than clinging on to it, you know, like it's this thing, it's not a thing. It's an experience. And if we do that more often, then it becomes less pressured and precious and ultimately more valuable to other people. I I personally write a lot of songs for my daughter in the moment. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're great. You know, I mean, I mean, as good as I can be. Um, but I never try to capture them. Right. They're they're just for that moment. They're communication with her. She's uh, six now. And there is communication with her in that moment. They don't need it. to be heard by anybody else. Somebody else might like them and that would be nice. But no, that's not what they're doing. Yeah.